0: Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy
1: with Toby Usnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact.
0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today we have our guest, uh, Pam Norley, who I've known for many years, and we'll talk a little bit about when and how we met, but she is the former president of Fidelity Charitable, which is an awesome institution. As the president of Fidelity Charitable, Pam was the leading voice in advocating for the power of American philanthropy across the world. Fidelity Charitable, the leading U.S. grantmaker, has granted more than $51 billion to more than 325,000 nonprofit organizations since 1991, advancing the philanthropic intentions of nearly a quarter of a million donors at all income levels. In 2020, Fidelity Charitable donors recommended $9.1 billion in grants to local, national, and global causes. During Pam's tenure, Fidelity Charitable's annual grant making went more than doubled, supporting the organization's mission to make charitable giving accessible, simple, and effective. Pam is a frequent speaker on the topic of philanthropy and trends related to it, as well as leadership. And today, never stopping, she is on the board of three nonprofits and the Fidelity Institutional Asset Management Board. Welcome to the Caring Economy, Pam.
1: Toby, thank you. Uh, great to be here.
0: So we allude in the beginning to how we met all those years ago from our mutual friend, Consuela Mack, when we were on Track. So shout out to Consuela. You've had such a vast and wonderful experience. I wonder if we do, typically with all of our guests, where you grew up, how
1: you were raised, how you found your way. So I am the child of teenage parents. My parents were... Married when they were 16 and 19, came along about a year later, and uh, within probably, oh gosh, maybe eight years, they had four children. I grew up outside of the Philadelphia area, although we traveled a, a lot or to the Florida area and around the country. Growing up, my dad was a professional baseball player, and we had a you know a pretty exciting life, I would say. Um, <clears throat> it was unusual in that my dad hadn't gone to college, and obviously my mom didn't go to college, and that prohibited my dad initially from dating my mom. So uh, the reason I bring that up is that when my father showed up to pick up my mother on their first date and my grandfather asked him where he was in college and he said, oh, I'm going to play baseball. My grandfather uh, politely closed the door and said, "I'm sorry, you're not eligible to date my daughter." Um, nevertheless, they continued to date. They got married, loped six months later. My grandparents, both of whom had gone to college, uh, both sets had gone to college, were a big influence in my life. And I think it was about, you know, you need to get educated. Uh, that's the American dream. And when I was ten years old, I said, "Well, I'm not even going to go to college. I'm also going to be a lawyer." So I kind of set myself on this academic path to do as well as I could mm-hmm. in school so that I could go on to be a lawyer. And uh, when I was in my fourth year at University of Virginia, my dad decided that he didn't, although he had the means, he decided he didn't want another lawyer in the world. He said, you know, I'm not paying for law school. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, what? Uh, so I stayed in Charlottesville, worked as a social worker with the court system down there, uh, then put myself through night school in Philadelphia at Temple. You know, I started out in this family that, you know, my dad actually did quite well financially, was able to go to college without any loans. And then all of a sudden I was in my mid-20s, really struggling to make it all, keep it all together. But it was a wonderful experience, you know, to have to completely support yourself. And for me, it was about staying on track to do as well as I possibly could so that I could get a job as an attorney. I mean, and my job as an attorney, initially, I thought, I just want to help people, which uh-huh. was so naive, um, because I also needed to make money to you know, But I initially worked in law school in the DA's office. So that was a, quite an amazing experience. And then took that in, and I was a litigator in private practice in Connecticut, uh-huh. and then ultimately ended up um, in-house as an attorney, finally made my way to Fidelity Investments in Boston back in the mid 90s and had a wonderful career there. Mm -hmm. And I was just very, very blessed and very fortunate to work for a company like Fidelity, which is privately held and allowed me to have all these very diverse jobs over my 25 year career, Mm -hmm. including Fidelity Charitable in the last five years.
0: Yeah, you were, like I, blessed to work for really great brands that invested in their employees and grew them. It was a reciprocal relationship in my experience. Do you think that's changed a bit in the past few years in many
1: brands? Or No, I mean, I I do think that there's enormous amount of trust in employers. I'm sure you're familiar with the Edelman Trust Barometer. A few years ago, all of a sudden, employers were seen as trusted brands, not a lot of other institutions, by the way. But employers as trusted brands, and I think with that comes an obligation. Employers mm-hmm. are, you know, working even harder today to be a place where um, their values, you know, have to be front and center so that, you know, people will be attracted to not only go to work there, but also stay there. Mm-hmm. So there's much much more focus, as you know, on corporate service, risk, social responsibility, um, ESG, ESG investing, yeah. you know, there's a, a, there's a whole... New world within these companies, I think, and that employer-employee relationship is is uh, needs to be a trusted bond in order for these companies to be successful long-term.
0: Agreed. Although I think it depends on the brand, right? Like if you yes, have a great, brand, great leadership like Fidelity or a place I've worked, you have that. So I guess it's kind of somewhat idiosyncratic depending on where you are, which sector and whatnot. I, I want to go way back to your dad though. I mean, I and I want to hear about your mom too, but um, you just say it so nonchalantly. My dad was a professional baseball player. So give us, do some myth busting or tell us how fabulous or not so fabulous. Well, he
1: was, he, Yeah, he was drafted out of high school. He went to work for you know play for the Milwaukee Braves. He didn't. He mostly was minor league ball. Toby, so let me be very clear. He'd be the first to tell you that Uh, he did pass a few years ago. But it was um, it was fun growing up because he knew all the athletes. He was you did not make a lot of money in baseball back in the late fifties, early sixties. You were selling beer and concrete and you know things with Hank Aaron. It was just some of those stories were just unbelievable. And then he went on to have a family and he realized he needed to make more money. So, and, you know, he wasn't going to be um, the next Tom Seavers, you know, he was a pitcher. And yeah. so he ended up going into business and, uh, you know, ultimately bought a, bought a company and, and did well over time. And we were very fortunate to have like a family owned business growing up.
0: Oh, cool. And then was your mom, was she a stay at home mom or did she? She was a very
1: traditional stay at home mom, even though her mother had been a teacher, her father was a, a engineer. Uh, and her mother had worked, I think, until my mother ran away to get married. And then I think she realized she needed to stay home. And so my mm-hmm. uncle took the run of that. But yeah, she was very traditional, incredibly traditional. And uh, in fact, I'm the oldest of four. And none of the spouses of my brothers or the um, my sister went off into the work, you know, had wives that worked and my sister never worked. No. Yeah. Uh, they all stayed home. And did, the what about
0: the other siblings? Where did they end up professionally?
1: uh Both my brothers were really good football players. They went to Division One uh colleges for football. They were quarterbacks. Yeah, I've got a lot of good stories. Ohio yeah, State, great. Georgia, Syracuse. Yeah, they're wow. Um, yeah, but you know they're they've all done well. I think you know again. I always come back to and you have a lot of women who are in business who have been in sports. You know, you started out. I mean, I played basketball and hockey and tennis and. Uh, ran and all those good things, and I think that gives you a sense of, you know, kind of team and camaraderie and Absolutely. competition and all those things, I think that were a good, kind of a good start in life.
0: Let's talk a bit about philanthropy, because you've been in it long enough uh, that you've seen trends, and you, what, what's what been constant, what's evolved? Um, for example, I know DAFs, the donor advice funds, have really come up to the fore and I think helped democratize in some ways uh, philanthropy, but what what have you sort of observed over the decades?
1: well i mean i think the constant is just generosity of americans mm-hmm. i mean i had the ability to be a bit a bit on a global platform mostly the focus was on american um philanthropists and american americans who want to use the donor advised fund for their giving but i had an opportunity to be on some platforms with some global thinkers and it's uh it's just a phenomenon we just have this ability to think about our neighbors first sometimes and i think it's outside of the cultures now a lot of my friends who live outside of the youth will say, well, that's because you get a tax incentive to do that. Yeah. And and that may be the case for some people, but it's certainly not the case for others. And I think that particularly the next generation, they're not thinking about, oh, I want to give money through my GoFundMe so I can get a tax deduction. They're not getting a tax deduction. Um, so I do think the generosity of Americans is just kind of built into who we are, mm-hmm. that we're generous and we think um, about our neighbors in different ways maybe than, than others do outside of this culture, because at the end of the day, government might be taking care of them, right?
0: Yeah, it's been my observation. Fiercely independent, but we're also very much a community from Ben Franklin on. You know, we built volunteer fire departments. And I think that that story needs to be amplified more these days because so many things are pulling us apart. <laughs> and yet there's so much that brings us together, Philanthropy being one example of those things.
1: One of the organizations that I'm very actively involved in and have a leadership role is Points of Light, mm-hmm. which is basically saying this is the civic century You know, you no longer have the ability to sit on the sidelines, you know, bring your best self to solve the world's biggest problems. And it's largely promoting volunteerism, but doing that right now, mostly through corporations. Mm. And so that has been a wonderful organization I've been able to go deep on. And we're constantly thinking about how do we get beyond all this. Partisan politics. It's a very much, even though it was founded by George H.W. Bush, it's very much a nonpartisan mm-hmm. nonprofit, profit and um, constantly challenged and very excited about the opportunities ahead of us.
0: Is it uh, U.S. only or is it global?
1: No, it's a global. It's a global organization. I think we're in 37 countries, but primarily focused here in the U.S. And if someone um, wants yeah. to
0: find out more about, is it pointsalight.org or
1: light.org. yes. It was started by George H.W. Bush in his inaugural speech, his inauguration speech. He points. talked about each of us being a point of light and we, you know, a thousand points of light. And if we could all come together and volunteer and work in our communities, work in our countries, work around the world, we could get at some of these systemic, deeply intractable problems and issues. And that largely has played out. So it's a, it's an organization that I'm very proud to be associated with. And there's an enormous future ahead of us because people like you are recognizing that we need more um, acknowledgement of our obligation back to the mm-hmm. communities.
0: It's interesting, and- I've talked to a number of um, academicians, university folks of late. Um, and I can remember maybe 15 years ago when I worked at the New York Times and we were all talking about Bowling Alone, which is a book that looked at the, the decline in civic engagement. And now it seems, particularly in the university setting, more of a focus on experiential learning and education. The students arrive wanting more, expecting more than just being in a classroom. So it feels a little bit like some confluence of things is going to make it perhaps an era, as you've suggested, of more of that civic engagement and collaboration, one can hope, right?
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think you're absolutely right that, um, you know, kind of starts now in the primary school Mm -hmm. where you're being really kind of incented to do volunteer work and I think because a lot of us were raised doing volunteer work probably I did some but you know I know my kids it was all part of their curriculum I think the earlier they start then they get to college and they're like I'm not gonna sit in the classroom all day how do I how do I really get out, get my hands dirty with how I really think about solving these problems? And mm-hmm. one of the many jobs I had at Fidelity was leadership development. Mm-hmm. And you quickly learn that it's getting people into an experience, having them not sit in a classroom and be taught about leadership, but rather working on a big strategic problem, working on an issue in collaboration with others in the company that are gonna allow you to really move the needle in terms of reaching your highest potential as a leader.
0: Yeah. I'm a big believer that uh, with leadership, it's both nurture and nature. I mean, I'm sure you can see in a four-year-old, that's a leader, right? (laughs) And then you put them in settings where they can all contribute, learn, and grow, and then that's how you do the development. And again, going back to the best brands, the ones I've worked for, they, they look for leadership, they recruit, they invest, they do programming around leadership, because I think that's, absent a crystal ball, the best way we can actually get the kind of leadership that will help us anticipate and thrive in the future. Would you agree?
1: Yes, absolutely. And although, you know, we need a lot of other, you know, I mean, obviously on the technology side, yes. uh, generally the folks in is a large, large, large tech company and always has been. And, you know, you don't have enormous amount of extroverts that are out there, rah, rah, you know, kind of leading in how you might describe as traditional ways of leading, but rather doing and being models for what needs to be done to advance the work, to get things done, to be highly you know, productive and efficient in a collaborative way.
0: I mean, I'm also believe that every company is a tech company today as well. So you definitely need the tech skills no matter what industry you're in. It does feel to me like there's been a real democratization in philanthropy, in the tools of philanthropy. What used to be rarefied family offices and people had the means to have an advisor or strategize around these things. As we said in the opening with Fidelity Charitable, you don't have to be a billionaire, a millionaire, a gazillionaire to do philanthropy and have the tools and the knowledge and the systems available. Is that a fair statement? And can you say a little bit more about
1: that? Yes. So again, getting back to the basis of Americans are incredibly generous. They're giving away. I think the latest numbers are four hundred sixty, four hundred seventy, you know, billion dollars annually, right? It's what they're taking tax for, and that includes corporations, in-kind giving, et cetera. So that's a big number. But Fidelity, 30-plus years ago, said, wow, there's a real opportunity here to make it a better experience for people to give away money. And at the time, the chairman, Ned Johnson, had started a foundation as Fidelity became more successful. You know, his thing was, wow, this is really expensive to run a foundation. Is there a way somehow that Fidelity can help other Americans to their philanthropy, their giving in a more efficient way. And mm-hmm. of course, you have the ability to give directly to profit, take a full tax deduction, including the appreciation on any securities when you get profit. So, Fidelity set up a nonprofit organization called Fidelity Charitable Gift Fund, has no employee, independent board of trustees, and hire Fidelity to provide services to the charity, which allows people to give their money directly. They then provide an enormous service, which is monetizing securities. Lowerly 65% at the time that I left there at the end of 21, of the contributions coming in were in the form of securities or restricted stock or some type of complex asset, which I can't take. So they did the service of selling securities, putting that money into individual accounts called a donorized fund, and then donors have the ability to, frankly, it's an Amazon like experience. You just give money away on your phone for account. Now, you're giving money away from recommendations, grants, but ultimately, charity has the ultimate say in whether the money goes to that or to that nonprofit. Back to that conversation you and I were having early on, we got mm-hmm. started, There are a lot of profits and there be a lot of what I would say nonsense. Mm-hmm. So it's always important that they be legitimate, they not be engaged you know, set up, um, you know, actual mission. So as a result, again, to it's kind of really been with the growth of, of technology, you know, it's a fin company that's focused on digitizing the experience, so it's easy. I mean, I go back to the days where checks or putting a credit card right. number in, you have to then pay the fee on the credit card. I should include that. I mean, I just made a donation to organization. Know, the credit card fee was going to be several hundred dollars and I was calling them saying please don't use my credit card I gave it to you I'm going to send a check we're going to you know I'm going to give it to you for my donor bond um, but this, there's you know they've just made it easy that's that's really why donors um, are turning to donor advised funds whether they're at you know Fidelity or other financial services companies or at community foundations and It really was setting out to democratize philanthropy. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's a big myth that only very wealthy people use donor advised funds. Mm -hmm. And in the most recent giving report that Fidelity Charitable issued, I believe back in February, they're making it clear that, you know, the the average account size is less than Mm -hmm. $25,000, that almost all of the accounts are under that amount. And that the average grant is forty five hundred dollars, mm-hmm. so it's it's a lot more. I don't know if you say regular Americans, but it's you know it's a. I think as you said, democratic people at every income level using yeah. these vehicles because they're easy.
0: Again, ladies and gentlemen, today on the caring economy, we have Pam Norley with us. She is the past president of Fidelity Charitable and an all around good citizen. The Donor-advised funds, the DAFs. Harlan and I, we just this week uh, were updating our wills and are opening up a DAF um, because it allows us, as I understand it, allows us to create the philanthropic vehicle, but not have to fill in all the details here and now about who gets what, when, and where. And so that flexibility, I think, also is something to consider. Do, do I have that right? <laughs>
1: There's You do, and I'm glad to hear that, yes. Toby, that you opened up a donor-advised fund. Uh, a yes, there's an there's enormous amount of flexibility in that. I mean, again, you're making the contribution today. <clears throat> under most DAF rules, you have an obligation to distribute the money, then at least be making grants on, a, on at least a biannual basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have the option to be thinking and more reflecting on how you want to do your grant making. Yep. So, I mean, I, I think a lot of people open donor advice funds because they give to multiple organizations. Mm-hmm. So it makes it easier for them to do all their grant making, all their record keeping, all their tax prep is all done through one organization. And that's, that's a lot of why this has um, been so fast growing.
0: We mentioned tech influencing philanthropy. I wonder, a two-part question about tech. One is about the tech people themselves and where they are in philanthropy, and the other is around social impact vis-a-vis or versus philanthropy. Uh, Tech gazillionaires, uh, how have you seen them as philanthropists affect, if at all, philanthropy, aside from their technology and innovations?
1: There's no question that new wealth earners over the last probably Decade, maybe more, have been very generous philanthropically. Mm-hmm. So they have done that in very different ways. I mean, there are some very well-known tech titans, as you call them, <clears throat> that have just made big donations to organizations, not thinking at all about their, you know, tax, tax consequences.
0: Nurse. Yeah,
1: and yeah. they have used all kinds of vehicles, and they do it, you know, like innovators do they want to do it in new ways and that's why i think that it's, it's donor advised funds have been a way for them to do things quickly without having to set up foundations for example get a ton of people involved and that i think has um has allowed some of these donor advised funds to grow more quickly so my experience is there's i mean if it's peer pressure or what it is but uh wealth creation particularly by a tech owners, technology kind of uh, titans, has resulted in an increase in philanthropy among that sector. Mm-hmm. Um, they really feel obligated to give back, to make it a better world. A lot of them feel, you know, just, but for the grace of God, you know, these things, this is a windfall. I've been very lucky. I need to pay it forward.
0: Mm-hmm. And and what about the concept of impact investing? Is that, How would you describe that for our listeners versus philanthropy?
1: Right. so, in so impact is a whole big definition of a lot of different things. Um, philanthropy is as well. I mean, so let me if you take philanthropy, which is you know generally based on the Latin verb, you know to, to love of mankind, normally we thought of philanthropists as you know very wealthy, the Rockefellers and MacArthur's, um those were the philanthropists because melons, they did they did big work in communities, and they've done it for centuries. More recently, you have a lot of millennials thinking that they're philanthropists because they're thinking overall about the impact that they have in their communities. Mm -hmm. They're thinking about, you know, I'm using my purchasing power to only do business with companies that I think are trying to make it a better world for all. I'm only investing in an impact way. And I'll talk more about impact investing in a moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm making decisions on which employers to go to work for based on how responsible I think that organization is in the world and how they behave. You know, there there's all types of facets of the, um, you know, kind of how people today are showing up to try to drive impact. And a lot of millennials, and we did some research on this when I was at, still at Fidelity Charitable, was that a lot of them think of themselves as, um, you know, impact investors, mm-hmm. but not just focused on their actual investment portfolio. Mm-hmm. So- it's, it's really two different descriptions and they're, and they're evolving. That's on really who you ask. A lot of millennials will tell you, they feel like they're impact investors. And it's not just because they want to make sure that they're doing business with socially conscious companies mm-hmm. um, and investing with those companies as well, but rather they're living their life that way.
0: So the more traditional philanthropy, the boomers and older now that are retiring or uh, passing on, we talk. We've talked for over a decade now about the great wealth transfer, those people of means who are transferring the wealth and hopefully the values to their heirs. How's it going in your estimation? Are people pretty hands-on? Are people in denial that they might die one day? or Are families (laughs) dysfunctional? (laughs) How's the great wealth transfer going?
1: (laughs) Well, I I think the advisor community is really focused on making sure that it goes more smoothly than it has in the past. Mm -hmm. So if you have your Assets, And again, we're going talking to boomers who many have used advisors or they have some type of person in their life who's helping them guide, guide them through money management, particularly um, in the retirement years, they're getting holistic planning around family values, transfer of wealth, Mm -hmm. how to transfer the values of of the family, uh, you know, to the next generation with that obviously comes a, a lot of wealth with it, a lot of obligation. So I certainly have worked in my um in my career more recently with families who are focused and understand the obligation that comes with wealth creation and the obligation to transfer the values to mm-hmm. their children, grandchildren, you know, in a more formal way than maybe it was done in the past. Mm-hmm. Can you and say I think you take a lot of credit for that?
0: Yes. Um I wonder if there are some lessons learned there that you might share, either because you've been working with very wealthy families or established philanthropists, or you've just been impressed with some uh, newer types of philanthropists. Um, what works well in philanthropy in terms of family dynamics?
1: <laughs> Starting with an advisor for sure. And again, it's the new it's the new advisor, the advisor that realizes that the value stack of providing services to their clients includes philanthropy you know it's not just asset allocation so they have enough money to live in retirement but rather it's having a deep relationship with not only the initially the client but also the wife and the family the next generation getting closer to them and and developing a level of trust because what's happened is and advisors have picked up on it very quickly over the last 10 years is client dies wife hires somebody new Children won't, don't want to have anything to do with it. They weren't involved. They didn't. They don't understand it. They don't trust. So I think advisors have recognized they've got to provide a higher level of service. They've got to go a lot deeper in terms of their value proposition with their clients. And a lot of it we learned um, is if you're including what their you know philanthropic desires are. You mm-hmm. know, if dad's been giving to this, mom's been giving to this, and bring the children on in an earlier stage. Mm -hmm. then you have a deeper relationship with those clients and with that family. And there's more likely to, you know, the assets are more likely to stay with Mm -hmm. the advisor, um, you know, as a generations transfer. And
0: and wonder about, you know, long view, short view. Um, How do you see, you know, things just happen, right? We had George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Was there more of a uptick in social justice philanthropy? We have climate disasters. Do we see more climate funding going on? Do you is a little bit of everything, or is it how trend oriented is the philanthropy that you're you're seeing by these types of investors or clients?
1: What I can talk about is the change that we saw with Covid, right? Please, no yeah. no surprise. You had a big change in where donors were giving. And Fidelity Charitable and a lot of other um, philanthropic players really advocated for our donors to get their money out and be helping in the community given the pandemic mm-hmm. and so we saw an enormous amount of increase in grant making um you know over the, the the course of the few years of the pandemic and it's and actually it's even continued in, in 2022 and but you saw a move away from so for example the arts and education to the social services mm-hmm. so for the first time in 2020 mm-hmm. you had wheels on wheels world central kitchen feeding mm-hmm. them- Uh, on the top 20 list of organizations who benefited from Fidelity Charitable Donors Grants. That was pandemic. So there's very much focused on social services, kind of bottom of Maslow's pyramid of where the need was in the community, because people can't be educated if they're not being fed. And so you had a, a real need, I think, to acknowledge that we needed to go back to basics there. I think it's now more back to... I don't believe any of those organizations was on the latest list. It's back though, the, the conservatory, Nature's Conservatory is always on the top list. Red Cross and United Ways being continuing to be. Good stewards of the of the you know of the money <clears throat> from the communities. The
0: other question is just the career one I always ask as a wrap: of pearls of wisdom, um, what you've gleaned in your career in your life um, that you might want either your younger self or someone who is just starting out on his or her or their career, or even someone who might be disrupted mid-career. Um, what, what sort of advice do you have for finding a purpose-driven career?
1: So my kind of the number one advice that I give at any level of anyone who's in their career is to develop and maintain relationship assets. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we know as we get older that relationships are everything. And for me now being in retirement, it's like it's a really intentional thing I have to do to stay in touch with all the people that I've met over the course of my life and career that I want to stay in touch with. And I know, for example, my daughter is thinking about applying for a different job and she, she's got all these relationship assets that she can tap, you know, that she can, she's like, Oh yes, I've got to reach out to that person. So I think early on in your career, it's just so important that you find people that you admire at all stages in all different backgrounds that you can use as a sounding voice, as somebody Mm -hmm. that, you know, whose voice and advice you admire, respect, trust and to maintain those assets over time and it you know it takes a lot of effort and of course having been in this you know grown to a senior job in in you know my company i was really intentional about helping others understand the importance of relationships and it was very interesting to see the difference between men and women you know women were always a little hesitant to reach out to ask if you'd be their mentor. This is early on, you know. The men are like, "Okay, you're you have this title. I want to know you. <laughs> you know, can you give me time? <laughs> yeah. I I need you to help me get to the next level. You know, I had a, somebody on my team who's like, all I care about is being a senior vice president. And I was like, <laughs> just do the job. You yeah. know, like, um, and then the women were a little more timid about it, and. So, but it was like, you know, just reach out and tell people, I admire what you do. I want to get to know you better. And, um, you know, please, you know, please uh, give me some advice. And I would always be willing to, I still do that. And I really enjoy it.
0: I do as well. I do it
1: all the time as well. I get, I get a lot out of it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's great advice. Um, I The thing I would layer into that is um, my friend Sue taught me this expression years ago, but it's about reputational currency. So yes, maintain those assets, but make sure you're doing it with the highest standards and integrity because you can't trade on your Rolodex. You need to make sure that you're responsible to those contacts, um, that you close the loop, that you, you let people know when you're using their name and that kind of stuff. So I agree. And then that leads that sort of great ripple effect where then they in turn will pay it forward. So I right. couldn't agree more. Yeah, Cam Norley, thank you so much for joining us on The Caring Economy. I want to have you back because you've got all these other things you're working on now, I and mean, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. But for now, I want to just thank you and say, have a great weekend.
1: Thank you so much, Toby. Be well.
0: Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Uznick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T or LinkedIn at Toby Uznik,
1: And thank you for sharing the caring economy with your friends and colleagues.